Welcome to the 321st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. I'm glad to return to the COVID Calls microphone after a much needed break. It was one that, quite honestly, I really needed but it's nothing compared to the break that nurses and doctors and teachers and other essential workers across the United States and around the world need. The stories right now coming from full emergency departments and overcrowded, unvaccinated classrooms in the United States are so distressing to me and many, many others. I wish everyone could find some time and some peace in the midst of all this. I also want to offer my sincere gratitude to guest hosts Kim Fortune, James Adams, and Jacob Steer-Williams for producing and hosting some very lively and insightful COVID calls discussions while I was away from the mic. And as always, nothing is possible without COVID calls super team members Bucky Stanton and Shivani Patel. Thank you all. As it seems to happen with this disaster, it morphs into something new every few months. And with the Delta variant, the school return season, and wars over vaccine and mask mandate bans in the United States, it's happened again. So I'm glad to be back with you. As always, I have a lot to learn, and I've invited some brilliant guests here to COVID calls to help me do so. Today, I discuss the many ethical dilemmas of COVID with my guest, bioethicist Arthur Kaplan. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. We're scheduled into October at this point. We have space on the calendar, of course, for new guests and new ideas at any time. So please do get in touch if you would like to share suggestions. As of today, August 16th, 2021, there are 4,362,337 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. 621,635 have died in the United States. India reports 431,642 deaths from COVID, while Brazil reports 569,058 have died. Afghanistan, up to its last time of reporting, reported 7,025 COVID deaths. We will have a special COVID calls episode about Afghanistan and COVID and the Taliban coming up within the next two weeks. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, She Was a Pistol. Natalie Kaplan, 96, a St. Patrick's Manor resident, succumbs after contracting coronavirus. It was written by Jeanette Hinkle and appeared in Metro West Daily News, Massachusetts, May 1st, 2020. Dateline, Framingham, Massachusetts. Natalie Kaplan was a pistol, a driven, persistent woman who knew what she liked and what she didn't. 
She was a lot of a bit of a diva, said her daughter, Deborah. Natalie got her nails done every two weeks, often in pink, her favorite color. If the salon was open, she would make her husband, Sydney take her even in a blizzard. She was always well-dressed, taking time to select a coordinated outfit, along with earrings and lipstick, even for small trips out of St. Patrick's Manor in Framingham, where she lived for the last four years of her life. And if Natalie wanted lobster, her favorite food, Sydney, and later, after he died, Deborah and her brother, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, would take her to Gloucester or Rockport or Situate, sometimes even to Maine to get it. She liked to crack the shell, not have it done for her, Deborah told the Daily News. She was an expert with those lobster cracker tools. On one of their last outings together, before the pandemic began sweeping the state, Deborah and Arthur took their mother to Legal Seafoods for her favorite meal. That was less than two weeks before visitors were banned at St. Patrick's, Deborah said. We were out frolicking and not even imagining what was to come. Staff at St. Patrick's had been preparing Deborah for that devastating possibility since April 10th when a social worker called to tell her that the building had three cases of the coronavirus, none of which was on her mother's unit. We extend our sympathies to the families and friends of these residents and share in their grief, Sister Maureen McDonough, administrator of St. Patrick's Manor, said in a statement to the Daily News. The sadness of this moment is no doubt compounded by the inability of families to share normal visits with their loved ones during the past several weeks. Our collective hearts break for every family member and resident who are missing the regular in-person connections with their loved ones, she wrote. Natalie was told she had tested positive for the coronavirus on Saturday, April 18th. While Deborah monitored local news for more information about the outbreak there, she tried to keep her mother grounded. Before St. Patrick's and nursing homes across the state barred visitors, Deborah would visit Natalie six or seven times a week. They played cards together, usually go fish. They watched Ricky Martin's Livin' La Vida Loca music video together. Natalie thought he was handsome. They talked and listened to songs from musicals like West Side Story and Man of La Mancha. When Deborah wasn't there, Natalie played bingo and painted with other residents, activities she was never interested in until a kind and patient nun at St. Patrick's convinced her to try them. But when the facility locked down as the virus spread, Natalie was largely confined to her room. No family, no friends, no volunteers could come in. And I'm not against that. It's just that when that happened, people were thrown out of their routine and started to get confused, and many of them declined, including my mother, Deborah said. After the first week of lockdown, Natalie started to become disoriented. She began asking Deborah what shows she liked to watch, what channels the shows were on, things she had remembered before. She asked when the lockdown would end. She asked what day it was, a question that particularly bothered Deborah, who had written the days of the week on cards that she would post on her mother's wall each day. I stopped being able to do that because I couldn't go in, Deborah said. As she watched her mother's mental health decline, Deborah also began hearing from friends who were losing loved ones in other skilled nursing facilities, including Marianne Morse Healthcare Center in Natick, where at least 20 people have died from the coronavirus. This is as of springtime in 2020 when this article appeared. And it still hadn't hit St. Pat's yet, but I know that it's probably coming and there's nothing you can do, Deborah said. That would be like trying to stand in front of a train and stop it with your bare hands. As of April 30th, 2020, St. Patrick's had not tested all of its residents and staff, according to Framingham Public Health Director Sam Wong, who encouraged all long-term care facilities in the city to conduct system-wide testing. 
On April 13th, St. Patrick's Manor staff had called to tell Deborah that residents in her mother's unit had tested positive for the virus. Two days later, Natalie asked for Tylenol. She was feeling achy, so staff checked her temperature and found she had a fever. They wanted to test her for the coronavirus, but Natalie refused the swab. At the request of staff, Deborah called her mother and convinced her to take the test. Deborah said Natalie never talked with her about the virus, so she isn't sure how aware her mother was of the risks she faced in St. Patrick's Manor. But she watched the news, Deborah said, and she saw members of the National Guard walking through the halls. She knew more than she was talking about, but I wasn't going to make her talk about it, Deborah said. Deborah had thought about taking her mother out of St. Patrick's, but her apartment isn't handicapped accessible, and she didn't have the ability to replicate the care that a team of medical professionals could provide. Care Natalie needed. When she was officially diagnosed with the coronavirus on April 18, 2020, Natalie's health had already started to deteriorate. The next day, she told her daughter she had no appetite. A butterscotch pudding Deborah delivered to St. Patrick's, one of Natalie's favorite foods, went uneaten. I knew she wouldn't eat it. I just had to try anyway, Deborah said. Deborah was overcome by a gnawing, sinking feeling. I knew the virus was going to take her, Deborah said. She thought of the rising death toll at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home and at Marianne Morse. Why would my mother's situation be any different, she said. She's been through a lot. I didn't think she had another miracle left in her. Deborah called the unit where her mother was being cared for. A nurse Deborah didn't know, I don't know where they found her, but she was great, Deborah said, answered and agreed to go to Natalie's room to crack her first floor window so that Deborah could speak to her from outside. Inside, Deborah could see the nurse dabbing Natalie's lips with water to keep them moist, something Deborah knew meant her mother was nearing the end. Natalie told the nurse to give her a sip of juice. I said, Mom, will you take a sip of juice? Deborah remembered. She was shaking, but I said to the nurse, put the straw in her mouth. She'll take a sip. For me, she will. For me, my mother did. Deborah, crying as she envisioned the scene, said she knew that vis- she knew that visit through the window would be the last time she would see her mother alive. As Deborah left, her mother asked the nurse to close the shades. The next morning, a nurse called Deborah to say that Natalie had gone through a significant change. They used that same wording with my dad when he passed, she said. That means it's going to be any time now. At 8 p.m. that day, Natalie died. A nurse at St. Patrick's who had cared for Natalie for years was by her side. The fact that my mother did not have to die with a stranger holding her hand meant to me at least it was something familiar and hopefully comforting so that my mother could let go, Deborah said. I knew she was ready to join my father. Deborah thanked the nurse for the wonderful, wonderful care she had given to Natalie. And she said, it's a privilege. Deborah remembered her voice cracking. That may be her standard line, but it's a good one. In her statement to the Daily News, Sister McDonough commended her staff for providing compassionate care to residents during an unprecedented crisis that has rocked nursing homes across the country. Their work, she said, has been nothing short of extraordinary. As Deborah's father, Sidney, was dying, he gave her a directive that shaped the next years of her life. He told her, take care of my girl. Deborah took him seriously, altering her days to ensure Natalie always had a companion who would take her to the nail salon, bring her Hershey's milk chocolate with almonds. Deborah was there when the hearse arrived at St. Patrick's. She put her hand on the bag containing her mother's body and said goodbye. Natalie was buried at Sharon Memorial Cemetery. The cemetery, the ceremony was small, fewer than 10 people per state rules at that time. Amid sadness, Deborah said she feels anger. For now, she said her anger is directed at the virus. 
But her brother, Arthur, a well-known medical ethicist at New York University, told WGBH in the spring of 2020 when this article appeared that the government has failed to protect its most vulnerable citizens. We did let the elderly go. We didn't protect them in nursing homes, he said. The article, the article was, she was a pistol, Natalie Kaplan, 96, a St. Patrick's Manor resident, succumbs after contracting coronavirus from May 1st, 2020. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest. I'm really pleased to introduce him to you, Arthur Kaplan. Dr. Arthur Kaplan is the Drs. William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty Professor and the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine in New York City. Dr. Kaplan is the author editor of 35 books and over 725 papers in peer-reviewed journals. His most recent books are the Ethics of Sport, which appeared in 2016 with Brendan Parent, and Vaccination, Ethics, and Policy, which appeared with Jason Schwartz in 2017. He served on a number of national and international committees, including as the chair of the National Cancer Institute's Biobanking Ethics Working Group, as the chair of the Advisory Committee to the United Nations on Human Cloning, the chair of the Advisory Committee to the Department of Health and Human Services on Blood Safety and Availability, and he's also served on the Presidential Advisory Committee on Gulf War Illnesses and the Special Advisory Committee to the International Olympic Committee on Genetics and Gene Therapy. He's a regular commentator on bioethics and healthcare issues for WebMD Medscape, for WGBH Radio in Boston, and WMNF Public Radio in Tampa. He's also the recipient of many awards and honors. Too many for me to name here. Please do check out his bio and his many works. Um, but among these honors include the McGovern Medal of the American Medical Writers Association and the Franklin Award from the city of Philadelphia. He was a USA Today 2001 Person of the Year. He was described as one of the 10 most influential people in science by Discover Magazine in 2008. This only scratches the surface of his work. Art Kaplan, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Scott. That was a very generous introduction. I was uh getting carried away with it. Who is this guy? All right. <laughs> and, and how does he have time to talk uh, it, to me? And, and I really appreciate you making the, the time today to talk a little bit about your your thoughts about COVID and, and the many ethical dilemmas that spring from it. I, I would like to start the way I usually do is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. So I live in Richfield, Connecticut. It's about 55 miles, almost due north of New York City. Richfield is an interesting town because it's not as wealthy as some of the Westport and Darien and other Greenwich, some of the richer Connecticut nearby towns, but it's pretty well off and it has a pretty well-educated population. As of today, <clears throat> about 70% of kids 12 to 17 are vaccinated. That's the kid rate. That's pretty good. Most towns not there. We are probably at about a 3.8% infectivity rate, which is higher than you'd like, but low for the country. So COVID here, I think people are watching warily. We're a town that will mask. We're a town that will vaccinate. We're a town that still goes out. I have been uh, 
a little vacation trip recently and masked all the way and masked all the way back. And I'm vaccinated and my wife is too. Uh, so pretty compliant. Uh, and I think that's done us some good in the middle of this plague in terms of keeping things relatively under control. One thing people may not know about Connecticut, and I, if I, I think I'm right about this, that it does have a tradition of bipartisan governance. I know it's predominantly Democrat, Democratic, but um, I wonder, you know, how that's gone in terms of the relationship between the state house and and the cities. And are you seeing the kind of anger and anti-masking and anti-vaccination um, there that we've seen in other parts of the country? So Connecticut's pretty blue. It's been drifting into the Democratic blue column for years now. It used to have more of a mix, what I'll call old school Republicans, uh, sometimes for those who are ancient Nelson Rockefeller Republicans. Um, they're still here, but they have not been fond of Trump. So the Republican Party is not full of uh, sort of angry and irritated folks. They tend to want to go along with public health messaging. There are a few folks who are outspoken and strident about COVID and don't like masking and don't like vaccinating. But in general, I would say this area in the state has been pretty uh, singing from the same hymnal pretty much about COVID. The article I read at the top about Natalie Kaplan, your, your mother, it's one that you shared with me, and I really appreciate appreciate you sharing it and having the opportunity to read it. Um, at the end, you know, your statement, we we did let the elderly go. We didn't protect them in, in nursing homes. Um, I wondered if you wanted to speak to that or, or to any part of that article that hearing it now really comes back to you in a strong way. Well, one thing that comes back to me is uh, my mom was a pistol. She was certainly enjoying her life even in a nursing home. At first, she didn't like it. Lived there a couple years with my dad. He died also at 96. Uh, good genes there, I guess. And then um, um, she went on and actually accommodated and enjoyed her life there very much. And she was, as the article said, active, engaged, liked her visits. My sister, who lived a mile from the home, saw her a lot more than I did down here. But she really enjoyed uh, uh, her life. And so even though some people tend to say, gee, 96, that's a good run. And, you know, maybe it's not so bad that COVID uh, was the cause of her death. I don't agree. I think she had many years of useful, fun, quality of life left, and COVID robbed her of that. I did hear some commentators over the past two years say, well, you know, the deaths are there, 625,000 or so. But a lot of them were older, and a lot of them, you know, they weren't working anymore. I don't buy that argument at all. I think that uh, the elderly, many of them can have enjoyable lives uh, far into their 70s, 80s, and 90s and beyond. I think uh, that we have to protect them and allow them to have a full lifespan. And my mom didn't get it. So that makes me angry. I think that uh, we didn't have the protective gear. You were hearing in the story that people were afraid to go in a room. They knew she was infectious. We have designed nursing homes so that they're not really a wonderful place to be in an infectious disease outbreak. Everybody's got a roommate, common bathrooms. Staff is moving room to room. 
it's a setup for bad disaster planning, if you will. Uh, the architecture is all wrong. And the way she died, she died pretty much with the nurse, but the family unable to get to her. And even at the funeral, we had five minutes to assemble at the gravesite and then scram because there were so many people who were having funerals. They didn't have time to let us uh, hang around very much to say goodbye. So I think those are neglected aspects of COVID. We worry about, you know, oftentimes the pictures of people on ventilators and uh, what are we going to do about masking. But the management of the elderly, horrible nursing home outbreaks in many states, including New York. You know, uh, Governor Cuomo is suffering from uh, his misdeeds in terms of uh, workplace harassment, sexual misconduct. I think in addition, he needs to be accountable for the nursing home disaster that took place in New York State, which was very similar to Massachusetts. Numbers got covered up, people made the wrong decisions, moved sometimes nursing home residents into hospitals, which you didn't want to do. But you know, I guess I could sum it up by saying, nursing homes have been neglected institutions. If I ask somebody, would you rather go to prison or go to a nursing home? I get about an 80% prison. That's not a good polling number (laughs) for uh, taking care of the elderly, respecting the elderly. And when this pandemic broke out, as was true for my mom, but for many others who had loved ones in nursing home facilities, they just could not cut it. Staff is underpaid, protective gear non-existent, not really much in the way of medical expertise brought to bear. Uh, really, really showed the flaws that still exist in that long-term care uh, setting. I'm I'm really sorry that you and your family had to go through that, and I and once again appreciate you sharing that that story. I, I, there's many things what you just said. I want to I want to follow up on one of them. You you glanced on, and that was, I think, other elected officials said things like this, but the one that got the most. Um, Attention was actually Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who appeared on Tucker Carlson's program last spring. Uh, and he actually said, and this is from an article in the USA Today at that time, he said the elderly, I'm quoting him, the elderly population um, who the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said are more at risk for COVID can take care of themselves. And he suggested in the interview that grandparents wouldn't want to sacrifice their grandchildren's economic future. I'm just going to say one more line of what he quoting him here, no one reached out to me and said, as a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? If that's the exchange, I'm all in. So he put it into this framework that we have to choose between the economy or the health of elders. He's not the only one who said that kind of thing, but maybe he put it most bluntly. I wonder your reaction to that. Hated it then, hate it now. The issue isn't, do we sacrifice our elderly so we can keep the economy running? The issue is, why did the Trump administration then not take COVID seriously? I don't know who was ordering protective gear. We didn't have it. That's got nothing to do with shutting down the economy. It has everything to do with making sure that if you tell your son-in-law, Jared, to go find protective gear to get to nursing home staff, to get to hospital staff, They get it. The thing took off because we didn't have the gear for them and some of them got sick and we didn't have the gear that would keep them from spreading 
in nursing homes and in uh, hospital settings, the disease. This notion, too, that somehow the elderly would say, well, kill me so, you know, the businesses of the United States can stay open. I think many elderly do think, I don't want to be a burden to my family. I don't want to cause them unnecessary pain and suffering or even financial hardship. But I never really heard too many elderly people say, gee, kill me so Wendy's can keep going. Or, you know, the hardware store doesn't have to close. I, that isn't how, that's just unsound public policy. One other gripe, we still haven't done this, but why we weren't doing more testing and then isolating is beyond me. And I still don't understand why we don't do it now. In other words, shutting down the economy, that's pretty drastic. I wouldn't disagree. Figuring out who's COVID positive and asking them to quarantine or isolating them makes far more sense. We didn't do it then. Believe it or not, we're not doing it now. We still have underused testing. So I think, in other words, there are ways to accommodate uh, trying to make the economy run without having to kill grandpa. Uh, I I find myself really having the same reaction you do. And, and there's something to go a little further with here is that it seems to also move past a necessary conversation in families and societally about end-of-life care and elder care, which are separate things. As you point out, there are many people my grandparents lived to be in their 90s, and they, uh, the, my memories of them, the strongest bonds of my life were made when they were in their 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. So I'm somehow supposed to say, well, they were just ready to, to die. They weren't. And then, of course, when they became ill or when older people have an injury and they may decline quickly, that can be a, a separate kind of ethical concern right. about end-of-life and how you ration care at that point. But why do you think those two are elided so easily? Are people not willing to dive into a little bit more granular detail there to have this conversation? Right, so we certainly have seen ethical advances in managing terminal illness and imminent death. And there people do make choices. They don't wanna have aggressive care. They do wanna have aggressive care, although most people don't once they really know they're sort of, you know, a few weeks to go or even sometimes a month or two to go. But this whole idea fostered, I think, by uh, an American love of, if you will, uh, work and output and contribution to uh, the economic part of society, that's got nothing to do with what do we do with the elderly. Um, that area, I think, is we work and we're told for what? Our retirement, our pension our ability to enjoy our uh, sort of uh, golden years. What happened to that rhetoric? Where did I let go? Right. Um, so I, to me, it's just uh, he and others who talk that way are confused. There is another line of this that also, you see some ethicists say it. Um, once you get to about 75, you've sort of done everything you're going to do, and you should sort of get out of the way to let other people do what they're going to do. Well, I don't buy that either, just in the sense in which you don't have to get out of, you don't have to hang on to your job till you're 92 if other people need to advance, but there's plenty of things you can be doing. I, I like your story about bonding with your parents. I think a lot of uh, our grandchildren have fond memories of grandparents because they have time to spend with them and they sometimes find themselves babysitting those kids and Bonds get formed, memories, wisdom gets passed on. 
So I don't buy this idea that if you're not contributing to the GNP, to hell with you. I guess it opens the way to a, a broader conversation that this country had around the time that the Affordable Care Act was passed. Maybe it's a never-ending conversation in America. I'm kind of afraid it is. But around universal health care and the right to health. And, you know, here we've seen it yet again. I mean, this pandemic has shown the cracks in medical um, you know, service availability, and not only in terms of medicines, ICU beds, but about, you know, the, the health for essential workers and doctors and nurses, too. I mean, across the gamut, we see all of the different stresses and tensions. How can you still at this time, you know, the way you've looked at this so closely, I guess, how can somebody still make a case against affordable care? Or maybe put it the other way, like, where do you see the argument now between sort of health and universality of health on one side and the economy on the other? Has it evolved at all through this COVID period? I don't know. I, I would like to say yes. Part of the reason we got in so much trouble, you know, we're the world leader in dead people from COVID. Um, I think it's uh, 600,000 plus is that we had a very tough time rolling out primary care for vaccination. Remember all that hoo-ha about where to get a vaccine and maybe we could open a stadium. It turned out that a lot of people don't have a primary care doctor. Therefore, they don't have a place to go to get vaccinated. Therefore, they don't have a trusted source of information. So we're good at therapy for dire, catastrophic disease, heart attacks, cancer. You probably wouldn't be in our health system if you had that, presuming you had insurance. But for prevention, for primary care, which is what you need in a pandemic or infectious disease outbreak, we stink. I mean, we're not very good at that. One would think then that the natural consequence is to pull out the safety net and capture those aspects of healthcare prevention vaccination, prenatal care, uh, post-birth visits, that sort of thing, and uh, make sure that we're not uh, um, blocking people who don't have good access, that they've got to have, you know, some way to get to primary care. If it's not in their neighborhood, we've got to set up some way to get it to them. But America has been so unwilling to treat healthcare as a right and to instead view it as something you earn through work, that is very deeply ingrained. And it has to be, to me, you have to pull it out by the roots. I'll put it this way. I think this country is a market capitalist society that wants people to be able to achieve and do whatever they can do with their skills and capabilities. Illness interferes with that. You can't have equality of opportunity and claim that you have a real capitalist society without basic health care for all. So to me, the link for Americans is we got to really recognize the connection between a market society and having health care. That's how you guarantee that everybody has a chance. If you're sick, you have no chance. If you're disabled, you have less chance. Uh, so to me, that's the basis of why it's a right. But our politicians, you know, left and right, still haven't gone there. Even Obama, when he was trying to push forward Obamacare, never really said clearly, this is a right.
quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to bioethicist Art Kaplan today. Art, last spring, after George Floyd was murdered and there were Black Lives Matter protests across the United States, there was a, a moment in there in which, of course, predictably, there will be criticism of any kind of uh, civil disobedience or protest in the United States, and we expect that. And it doesn't always just come from the right, but in this case, it certainly did. But one of the things that emerged in that moment was a discourse around um, whether it was a double standard for public health officials to encourage protest. And I, I'm sure you were paying attention at that moment. And I talked to some doctors at that time um, who had said, you know, basically, I told my uh, Peter Chen Hong, for example, is a physician at the University of San, California, San Francisco. So I encouraged my students to go out and protest. And he framed it as a public health issue. He said protest in this sense is is part of addressing the public health problem of systematic racism, systemic racism. I've been wanting to ask you about this for a long time. I'm glad I have the opportunity now. You know, how did you see that moment? Because it did put in stark relief these sort of different sort of ethical commitments in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of a racial pandemic in America. Well, remember, we didn't have vaccines then. So that wasn't on the table. So people were having mass gatherings, wondering, is this ethical, uh, given the fact that we didn't have any way to vaccinate anybody? I thought it was ethical if you wore a mask, to be simple about it. I thought if you protected yourself, if you tried social distancing, which was hard and marching around in the streets, I wanted the cops to mask. I wanted the demonstrators to mask. My view was, let's do what it takes to prevent transmission by masking. And masking has always been pretty good uh, as a strategy. If you were COVID positive, I wouldn't have been out there. Too risky, don't do that. Get a test, make sure you're not gonna uh, spread the disease. But I think the political process doesn't come to an end, even in a plague. And for outrage about mistreatment of minorities by the police or lack of access to resources for minorities in the middle of a plague, I do think you have to speak up. I would agree with your guest from uh, UCSF. There is a public health angle on this, which is you got to get resources to me too, <laughs> otherwise I'm going to die. So I got to hit the streets to call attention to systematic racism and what it does for my access to healthcare, uh, for my access to social resources. So. I wish everybody, cops, fire, National Guard, demonstrators, mask. Now, that may sound funny because people are going to say, hey, in some of those demonstrations, weren't people throwing stuff at the cops? Yeah, but everybody should have had a mask on. <laughs> right. I mean, that's where you see this this collision, to me, these sort of different ethical frameworks. that, And it doesn't seem like they often collide in a way that's so so clear but what i hear you saying is that it, it i mean i like what you said that you know the politics or the, the democracy doesn't just stop because you're dealing with the pandemic ethically that's challenging i think to people is confusing about how to know to act how to act in a moment like that you know it's funny i get a lot of people still asking me uh should i say something if somebody isn't masked in the store to which my answer is yeah sure i mean not accusatory, not, you don't have to be uh, in the guy, in the person's face, uh, sort of saying, you know, what's going on? I think it's fair to say, I've got a mask. I think that's a 
a good thing to do. Uh, I wish you were doing that too, because I think we'd all be better off. I, I do think it's appropriate to talk to a neighbor, talk to a family member who does something. I think it's appropriate if you're going to visit your loved one in the nursing home to remind uh, everybody they should be vaccinated now before they go there. Ask them if they are. So it's been interesting. Personal ethics, day-to-day ethics has become, for me, part of a discussion that I really didn't have pre-COVID, which is how do you behave around one another uh, in the middle of a uh, infectious disease plague that, you know, when you're worrying about cancer and you're worried about uh, heart disease, you're not worried too much about what you're going to say in the supermarket to somebody. It's sort of like one level beneath that, it, then, is, is that because I mean, the ethical basis of, of saying to somebody in the supermarket, here, I've got a mask and you wear it, is the idea there's an assumption there's a social contract and we all sort of are in this together? I mean, that's what's behind this, or is there some other way to think about that? Well, I think it comes in two, a couple of ways. First, I think I want to be protected. So it's my self-interest. I want you to mask or vaccinate to help me. Second, there are vulnerable people in our community. Can't vaccinate kids under 12 in the U.S. Um, situations where people have immune diseases or cancer, transplant. we got to protect them. So the moral principle there becomes not do what you want to do, but don't you want to protect the weak and the vulnerable from getting sick? And then there is a social contract. We're kind of in this together. Plagues depend on community behavior to beat them, not individual choice. So if the community vaccinates up, masks, does frequent testing, isolates, doesn't run around, COVID positive, that's how you can cope with, I don't know, get rid of COVID, but you can cope with it uh, much more readily when you're just, it's my choice and I do what I want and I don't need to have anybody else tell me my body, my choice, my freedom. That's too limited a view of freedom. Uh, freedom comes with obligations. The community sustains you, allows you to have a lot of these freedoms. As uh, Socrates might have said, you owe things back to the community because of the benefits you get. So challenging in the United States, and not only in the United States, which celebrates individualism, and it's so much of what we, you know, individual achievement, and and um, and I, no part of society is immune to that. I mean, even you know, we start. I start COVID calls. I I read the um, professional CV of brilliant guests. I mean, we are oriented towards individualism, and yet this time has called for. Not a total suspension of that, but a but a hard look at that. I mean, just thinking back to last spring with the global lockdowns and the fact that you could look around the world and see that billions of people were participating simultaneously in individual behaviors that were for themselves, but were also potentially saving lives of people they would never meet somewhere far away. I felt like that was a moment for a lot more discussion of this and some education, but people were binge watching TV shows and dealing with their, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like the most. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the, I think I launched it. I won't say I'm the only one, but I think I helped. I'm part of this backlash against, I'm sick of the, hearing about the rights of the unvaccinated. I'm just tired of it. Unvaccinated are a threat. They threaten the weak, the people with weak immune systems, kids. Uh, they threaten to send us back into more lockdowns. They threaten the economy. I want to hear about the rights of the vaccinated. 
And we sort of in America never, we got off on the wrong foot because half the country wound up saying, well, what are the rights of the unvaccinated? Well, they don't have to mask and they don't have to vaccinate and they go where they want. And you can't tell them to do anything because they have liberty. This is ridiculous. I mean, that line of argument never should have been tolerated by our spiritual community, religious community, philosophical community, and dare I say it, legal community, because it's a lot of bunk. Nobody is free to do whatever they want. What do you mean? I can't put up a sign in my store and say, no shoes, no shirt, no service. That all of a sudden is morally untenable, illegal, that I can't restrict that way. Employers have been under pressure for at least 100 years to make the workplace safe. We don't care about that anymore. They can't have mandates to vaccinate. So my point being, we are on the wrong moral foot. We got off on the wrong moral foot, as you pointed out. And we stayed there for too long. And I think it is our sort of bizarre love affair with uh, personal liberty in a, I'll, I'll sneeringly say, Ian Randian sense. Right. I do what I want. No one helped me. I achieved everything on my own. Really? Not even your parents? Not even anybody who taught you in school? No coach? Nothing? You just kind of sprung out of the womb, grew up uh, somewhere with wolves, and then decided to create a company? Right. That's it? Oh, I'm glad you brought it into the into the vaccination discussion. I was talking with a Korean colleague here a couple of days ago, and he said, I understand vaccine mandates. And he said, I understand people who don't like that or who don't or who are hesitant about cases like that. It seems like we've broken new new territory here. That's new territory. And here's the real rubber hits the road. These conservatives, and that's who they are in most of the states where the bans are on vaccination, are telling businesses what they can and can't do. Really? You're going to tell some employer a cruise ship line in Florida, the governor of Florida says you can't prohibit unvaccinated people from coming on your boats and you can't require vaccination of the passengers or the crew to a private business? How does that square up with conservatism? I thought these are at-will employers and they're supposed to be out there using the wisdom in the marketplace. Well, I think cruise ships in general, aren't going to do well unless they promise vaccination. So I think uh, our legislators in some parts of the country pandered a bit to the liberty rhetoric and basically said, we're with you. We're going to keep you as free as possible. Do what you want. That's what uh, somewhat the core of the Republican Party has started to stand for. And then I think they have, as I said before, a kind of seventh grade understanding of what liberty and choice mean. They, I mean, what's next? They're going to uh, permit drunk driving. They don't care if you go on the wrong side of the road. Stop signs are optional. I mean, you know where we're going here. The only way you can keep society functioning and coherent is to have some restrictions when liberty intersects with the interests of others and may harm or hurt them. Uh, they don't seem to have pick that up somewhere along the, along the road to uh, understanding what liberty is all about. You know, you almost want to take them back and say, would you please reread John Stuart Mill yeah, right. on liberty and sort of see where the restrictions come in and not just, as I said, give me some Ian Randy and rugged individual. I owe nothing to no one. I do what I want. 
Uh, society should not repress me ever in any way. Uh, yeah, and by the way, this isn't just on the right. I hear people out of Silicon Valley sounding like this libertarians sure. more from the left end of the spectrum. And you're sort of like, really? Uh, that, that That's like a, I'd give that a D if someone turned that in as a paper in my ethics class. Yeah, I think um, I have anti-vaxxers in my family who both come from the right and the left. It's it's not it's and I think you're right. It's predominantly in this case been politicized from the right. But I mean, this it, the problem seems to also. I mean, it, it just requires more venues for discussion. Um, I guess, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. Maybe this is kind of a solutions-oriented question. It seems like we've once again kind of jumped to this notion that. Um, it'll get worked out in the town hall meeting or it'll get worked out at the school board meeting. And then we roll the tape of the angry patient. Right. So even if it's one wingnut who happens to be there at the town hall meeting, they're going to get a lot of airtime because they're stirring the pot. I think that requires some media ethics analysis. I mean, I always see people say there's a demonstration out there today, anti-vaxxers don't want vaccines in the school. And you're thinking, it's a demonstration of 18 people. What in the heck are we talking about here? I'm almost tempted to say, who cares? There, That's a tiny minority showing up at a lot of these things. Uh, I'm not going to say it's always a tiny minority, but if it is, could we please explain that as part of the reporting? Obviously, the big social media companies have failed us. They keep saying, hey, we're just carriers. You know, we don't edit. We're not news outfits. We're just, we're just like uh, um, billboards by the highway. People rent us and you put up whatever message you want. What nonsense. Of course, they're in the news game. They're constantly trying to uh, message to us to buy product. I'm talking Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and all the rest. To let them hide behind this idea that they're just uh, carriers of information but have no editorial responsibility. I don't buy that. Just sticking with the, the vaccination issue for a minute, but bringing an international perspective here, I just heard this morning, 13%, this is from Ed Yong's new piece in The Atlantic, 13% of the world is vaccinated. I'm in South Korea. The numbers are going up as quickly as the government can management, but I'm not vaccinated yet, and that's not by choice. Um, from here... Of course, it's hard to watch what's going on in the U.S. with vaccine doses basically dumped in the gutter in states where they don't, or people are letting it and they're not interested. Um, that's hard to watch. But also the Biden administration, there does seem to be a hoarding mentality. And I mean that not only in terms of hoarding actual physical doses, but hoarding the patents, holding on to the intellectual property in the middle of this global pandemic. Is there, I mean, help me understand sort of the ethical case for hoarding vaccine, because I'm I don't see it. Maybe there's not a case to be made. I don't know. But it strikes me. You look at this pandemic only from the U.S. You see a really distorted picture of it. And the rest of the world that needs vaccine is looking at the U.S. and saying, why are you not helping more? Yeah, by the way, I think the biggest uh, violators, Canada, I think they've got more vaccine stockpile relative right. to population than anybody. It's, it's off the charts. And the answer to your question is boosters. Everybody is worrying down the road that the Vaccines will wear out, and we're going to have to revaccinate more than once. Intellectual property sharing, I don't think is going to help because what you need is factories. And so what we're seeing is, while we often heard people say we have a pretty good public health system in the U.S., 
it's not set up to manage worldwide pandemics. The WHO doesn't have any authority or resources. It's kind of a, dare I say it, chattering society, uh, but it can't really get much done. And now when you want to see manufacturing all over the world in different countries, then the intellectual property would be useful and ought to be free. What you're relying on is the rich countries to give to the poor. And the rich countries are nervous because of this booster issue, and they're slow to do it. So sadly, here's a grim prediction. You and I will be having this discussion next year because we're not going to see the world vaccinated anytime soon. New strains are going to keep popping up. They're going to get around the world due to travel and student exchange and business and wars and immigrants and refugees. And I, you know, the long-term solution here is to vaccinate the world, but that isn't going to happen for a while. Going back to our discussion earlier, the sort of the supermarket case and encouraging someone to wear the mask, you do it to protect myself, I do it to protect you, do it to protect people in society who can't get vaccinated. I mean, that extends beyond national boundaries, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. The, so why can't, why is that case not winning traction? I mean, people not being vaccinated in South Korea does impact the United States. It does, but American politicians don't get elected by the citizens of Zambia. So they play to the self-interest and the nationalism of their countries. And by the way, so do other countries too. Sure. India had contracts. It does have manufacturing capability to share a vaccine, but it didn't do it. It's poured all its vaccine into India. There's a lot of people there, so they're going to be doing that for quite some time. Nationalism is still a powerful uh, moral value. Politically, it drives everything that uh, countries more or less do, what's in our interest, how do we establish our foreign policy. And let me say something about uh, WHO, which occasionally you see a statement come out saying it's wrong to worry about boosters if you haven't vaccinated the world. Well, even with stockpiling, we don't have enough vaccine right now to vaccinate the world. So here's a question for WHO. Who should we do first? Our allies? South Korea, Canada, Mexico, the most vulnerable nations who have the oldest demography, Japan, uh, countries that are likely to want to exchange visitors with us, uh, they have not given us any guidance. So, yeah, it mm -hmm. sounds good, vaccinate the world. No matter what we did, we're not going to vaccinate the world instantaneously. So you get to this question of who's first. I have a few minutes left with my guest, bioethicist Art Kaplan. I want to ask you a little bit about training now, Art. I mean, um, you know, you're you're a person who um, is involved in ethical, you know, training and education in a in a medical setting or adjacent to a medical setting. And I wonder. I mean, I've I've asked other guests this too, how they think medical education will change in this time. What do you see? Um, in terms of the, the mark that COVID might leave in the way that medical public health education and giving the people stronger tools of ethical reasoning or, or legal understanding of I mean, there's so many dilemmas, even we've just scratched the surface here today. Our next generation of essential workers is going to need these tools, aren't they? Well, let me give a little shout out to my school, NYU. So one thing we did a couple of years ago is we went tuition free or a few schools, and by some rankings, we're the number two medical school in the country, so that's pretty good. We 
we were attracting students without having to be tuition free, but we really tried to commit to diversity. So one way to improve our health system is to have more diversity in its workforce. Second thing we did, we opened up a new medical school on Long Island aimed at generating primary care providers. We need more of them. Uh, we're trying to make it tuition free for them so they don't have to go into specialties to pay back a zillion dollars of debt. That's really great. Third step we've taken, you can now complete medical school in three years at NYU. Try to turn over the personnel, get them out there more quickly, make sure that we have more and more docs, which I think will help a variety of uh, problems, particularly if they're diverse. So you can see some lessons there that I'm pointing toward. Medical school costs too much. It's too selective. We need more docs. We have docs in the wrong places, too many specialists, not enough primary care people. Then I think the last thing I would say about educational reform is we're never going to be ignoring whatever else we do, epidemiology, and some lessons learned from this pandemic about infectious disease control and so on. Those are moving in. We've already got them moving into the curriculum. You'll see more of that happen, which is good, too. Uh, I wish we'd spend more to generate up more nurses, more pharmacists, more physician assistants. They can play key roles in uh, primary care, too. And sometimes docs get a little nervous about the competition. Eh, forget that. Let's get them out there. Just uh, on a closing note, you're so prolific. You, you mentioned one area that you thought was some new terrain for bioethics, which is this vaccine mandate bans. Maybe there's others coming out of this. I don't, I don't want to give you to give up our, your trade secrets, but uh, what are you working on next coming out yeah. of this? So two things. Operation Warp Speed seems to have generated vaccines relatively quickly. Give Trump some credit. I think he poured money in there. I don't think he deserves a lot of credit because I think he ignored testing and masking. But uh, nonetheless, vaccines move. How should that shape the future of research? You know, if you have ALS, if you have terminal cancer, it's your emergency. It's your crisis. <laughs> it's bad like COVID. Do we use lessons learned from the vaccine development? Can we apply things to speed up research in other sectors? Thinking about that. Is that safe? Is that the right thing to do? Or is it just unique to vaccine development? And we don't want to wind up taking too many risks in order to try and match what we did with COVID. The other area I'm still keenly interested in is uh, the use of genetics. How can we predict who's going to respond to a vaccine or any medicine? How do we know where the side effects are? And if you do that, sounds good. But you may create a whole class of people who no one wants to treat or no one wants to give medicines to because they're too high risk. Medical orphans. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. It's new time starting today. I'll be talking with Anna Muldoon tomorrow about COVID-19 and conspiracy theories. And I want to thank my guest today, Art Kaplan. Um, illuminating discussion, Art, I knew we were just going to get to the surface level of things, and I hope that you we can find time to talk again. Before. Very good. I'd enjoy that. Yeah. As I predicted, we may be doing it a year from now. Well, hopefully we can talk before then. I know you have yeah. a busy schedule this evening. Thanks very much, Art, and, and stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on COVID Calls.